privilege to be here and uh, I'm grateful to Paul and Steph and the team for the invitation. The older you get, the more you minister to people of your same age and that means I'm ministering to all the sort of grumpy old greys uh, increasingly these days and, and leaders, but it's just wonderful to be with 20-somethings, 18 to 30s or whatever. And if God's going to really do something in our nation, it's going to be in your generation. It's simply a fact of church history that those that God has most used to precipitate new moves of God have been invariably in their 20s or early 30s. And you can just trace this through the history of revival. Young people are the ones who bring about breakthrough and the breakout of God in the church. And I'm not quite sure why that is. I'm sure there's something sociological and psychological about it. By the time you get to be, um, you know, middle-aged or whatever, you can become a little bit set in your ways and predict and you think you've got it all sewn and, you, and, and, and maybe a bit cynical and a bit jaded. But in your age group, you've, you've got that fire, it's all ahead of you and you're ready to go, and I'm just excited to see what God is going to do. Ever since I became a Christian as a young adult, I've longed for a revival, and uh, I've spent 30-odd years studying revival and teaching on it and praying for it and pushing for it. We haven't seen it yet, but I now, as a fat, gray old man, think it's the young generation. So I'm, I'm privileged to be here. I know I'm not cool, except for my clothes, which are very cool. Um, but I want to teach from God's word yesterday and this morning, just exhorting you and encouraging you to have these firm foundations in place. Because revivals and renewals can really go askew when the firm foundations are not there to contain what God does. We had a wonderful message last night from Paul. This is the generation where truth is being so profoundly undermined. Everything is, re is relativistic. Everything is reduced to the subjective. My truth, your truth. It was a brilliant message. And Paul encouraged us to come back and to stand firm on, to be rooted in, immersed in God's truth. We've got to be people of God's truth. And where do we find God's truth? In his word. In his word. A lot of people claim to have God's truth, but it's just subjective thoughts they're having. It's in God's word. And I want to encourage you, if you hear now else from me this morning, to encourage you to be people of the word. I want to encourage you to buy a new Bible. I know many of you read your Bible on your um, phones, and that's okay, except that there's so much temptation, and your brain is automatically hardwired to just swipe and Instagram, and swipe and tweet, and swipe and buy some on Amazon, and just twice, you know, swiping around. You've got muscles I haven't got from all that swiping. But you've got to learn that one. Now, there are lots of Bibles on sale here. I've just had a look, there are loads of them. And uh, they're on sale. And I want to encourage you, be the first to get a great new Bible. They're cheap, I can't believe how cheap a Bible is these days. My books on the stall are overpriced. 
They are. Don't buy one. I'm sorry to the books that honestly don't buy one. Everything in all my books is available as teaching on the St. Aldate's website. Just go there and get it overnight. <laughs> Podcast it for free. And instead, buy a Bible. Really. I only get 30p for every book I sell, so I don't care. Go online. <laughs> okay. Uh, that's a lie. I probably get 33p, but. You know what? I'm so thrilled. In 1991, I went with my wife to the first ever vineyard. Uh, we didn't attend it, we visited, and, um, you know, there was 120 people there. And now there's 120 vineyard churches. There are what, seven, eight, I don't know how many hundreds here. Young people ready to go for God. It's an amazing thing that God is doing in and through the vineyard. And you ain't seen nothing yet. But I believe for a revival. We haven't seen one in a long time. We haven't had a revival proper across England. We didn't have it in the 20th century. Would you one? And as I said, it's your generation. But you need to put first things first. And you need to put the cross at the center. You need to have the word at the center. And I want to open up a theme this morning. I'm not going to go on too long. Well, that's a lie. I'm going to go on a long <laughs> term. <laughs> I'm just going to move that because it's distracting me. But I'm going to keep that orange thing there because I quite like the look of that. <laughs> if you've got a Bible, please turn to Isaiah chapter 11. Isaiah 11. It's kind of smack bang in the middle of the Bible, but turn right a bit. Over the past 50 years, the, the church has seen some amazing works of God. We haven't had a revival proper but we've seen all sorts of wonderful renewals. And the Spirit has renewed and equipped the church in many ways. And there have been all sorts of rediscoveries of who he is, how he is, what he does, and what he wants to give us. We, we've rediscovered in post-war church in the West um, the fullness of the Spirit and the gifts of the Spirit. What a wonderful thing. We've rediscovered every member ministry, so it isn't just the priest or the pastor uh, who's doing everything, but the church are equipped to be involved in ministry. Everyone gets to play, as John Wimber used to put it. And we've seen a, a spirit-based ecumenism where a shared love of Christ and a shared fullness of the Spirit has done more for the ecumenical movement than decades of sitting around arguing over details in the creed, where our shared experience of, of the, the, the life of the Spirit has brought us together. And what a privilege it's been for me to be in many different contexts and countries with different traditions, all worshiping God. I've loved it. And God has uh, helped us to understand um, and to break down a kind of secular spiritual divide where we just kind of put God in a religious box on Sunday. But we understand that we're the people of God every day in the workplace and taking God, taking his kingdom, taking on the city for God. What a wonderful thing that has been. There's, there's sort of a 
rejection of a compartmentalization. And we've understood something new of creation care. What a mess my generation and the previous one have made of the world. What a mess. And your generation gets it. And the millennials, the generation Y, they see it and they say, we're not going to put up with it. We're going to do something about it. We're going to care and we're going to campaign and we're going to commit to making a difference. It's a beautiful thing. All these things are works of the Spirit in and through the church. But there's something that's somehow got lost. And I believe that if we're to see a, a real revival, we need to have a real renewal of this understanding and of this relationship that we have with God. And so today I want to talk about the theme of the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord. Have you got your Bible? Isaiah chapter 11. And this is a messianic prophecy. It's one of the major messianic texts. It was actually the main Holy Spirit text for about a thousand years in the church. They went here. Every Anglican confirmation and Catholic ordination, they came to this text to understand what the Spirit does. Sadly, this one now seems to have got buried. But preeminently, it's about Jesus and the Spirit upon him. And then we should learn from it and infer from it the Spirit upon us. Verse 2, the Spirit of the Lord will rest upon him. What a wonderful thing. The Holy Spirit wants to come and rest on us, to find his rest on us. What a thing. The Spirit of wisdom and understanding the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight will be in the fear of the Lord. The sevenfold gift or grace of the Holy Spirit. Seven in Hebrew is a perfect number, like number three. And here is the perfections of the Spirit of God and the action of the Spirit of God upon the individual and upon the church. Wisdom and understanding, counsel and might, so kind of word and power, knowledge, insight, revelation, and unction for works of ministry. Knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Fear of the Lord? Well, hang on, what's, what, what do you mean? The fear of the Lord is an evidence, a gift, a fruit, and a mark of the presence of the Spirit. And his delight will be in the fear of the Lord. Now, I've written a couple of books on the Holy Spirit, and uh, I didn't mention there at all the fear of the Lord as being a fruit or a gift or mark or an evidence of the Spirit. just didn't come into my mind because it wasn't in my mind. It was something I just didn't know or understand. And because I'd grown up in a very strict religious context, although I left it in my teenage years for many years far away from it. For me, the idea of the fear of the Lord was equated with an oppressive, abusive, religious spirit. And I confused and conflated the two. Then they're completely different things. One is the work of the spirit. The other is the work of a religious and demonic spirit. But I've written these books on the Spirit. I've probably given hundreds of sermons on the Spirit. 
I've certainly listened to thousands of sermons on the Spirit. I've gone forward hundreds of times to be prayed for the Spirit. I've led numerous appeals to be filled with the Spirit. But I had never once ever talked about the fear of the Lord as an evidence of the Spirit. I'd never looked for it, never taught on it, never prayed for it, never invited it. It just wasn't there in my framework and understanding. I just didn't get it. And yet, as I was reading this a little while ago and preparing this talk, I just felt God downloading stuff to me and showing me stuff that I'd missed and which the church seems to have missed, and yet which is a fundamental feature of real renewal and revival, and that is the fear of the Lord. On one occasion, a very famous Pentecostal charismatic minister, woman minister, came up to me, and she said, uh, well, you've written the book, now get the thing. And she grabbed my nipples like that. <laughs> I wasn't wearing my waistcoat in those days. That's why I wear them. And uh, she grabbed me. And she just squeezed. I said, like, ow, what are you doing? What is this? You've written the book. Now get the thing. I, instead of putting on my West Country accent where I'm from, I put on my best Oxford accent. I went, thank you very much. You know, and walked up and thought, you're a nut job. What on, <laughs> earth, what on earth is that? Listen, the thing is not that thing. I remember sitting at a meal table once with a charismatic. I'm a charismatic, by the way. You know, I've written books. I, I can jump. Well, I can't jump. It's a, a bit heavy for it, but I once could jump. <laughs> jump in the house, you know, I can do all that. But there was a bloke sat opposite of me in a meal table, he kept taking out arrows and shooting me like that. As if that was the thing. That's not the thing, that's just a silly thing. That's just, you know, listen Robin Hood, step off and eat your meal, you know, what are you doing? What is the thing? We need the fear of the Lord. We need the fear of the Lord. And the question must be begged that if the evidence and fruit and mark of the Spirit is the fear of the Lord, that is mentioned twice. Wisdom and understanding, counsel and might, knowledge and the fear of the Lord, underlined, and his delight will be in the fear of the Lord. Then we've got to ask, what, what, are, we, what are we doing? And what are we receiving? Now, what is the fear of the Lord? Okay, Ponsonby, we accept that. It's in the book. What is the fear of the Lord? Well, there's a very interesting and foundational text on this with the Ten Commandments. And in Exodus 20:20, as Moses brings from God the Ten Commandments, he says, Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. God has come to test you so that you fear God. You ever notice that? I hadn't really until I wrote this talk. Don't be afraid, but God has come to test you so that you have the fear of God. The fear of God is not being afraid of God. 
It is a cata- sounds like the same word. It is the same word in English, but actually there's a categorical difference. That isn't an oxymoron. The fear of the Lord is not the same as being afraid of the Lord. That's why Isaiah can say his delight will be in the fear of the Lord. In fact, that word there for delight in the Hebrew comes from the word to smell and enjoy. It's the word that God uses when he smells a burnt offering. He goes, ah, bisto, that kind of thing. It's that kind of thing. So the fear of the Lord is not a kind of quaking, shivering, freaking out, hiding. That's not the fear of God. That's being afraid. The saints aren't afraid of God, but they fear God. And we delight in it. Ah, the fear of God is in this room. So what is the fear of God? American theologian Robert Strimple says, it is a convergence of awe, not O-R, A-W-E, awe, reverence, adoration, honor, worship, confidence, thankfulness, love, and fear. When I wrote that, I thought that was pretty good, but now I think he's just thrown a load of words at it. But he's kind of right. It's a kind of elusive thing. It's not being afraid, but it is to convey this sense of awe and of wonder and of delight, simply gobsmacked. Just recognizing the distinction between the creator and a creature, and yet the creator stoops in love to the creature. A few of those on the ministry team who are old enough will remember the musical Jesus Christ Superstar. Remember that? I mean, even if you put your hand up, I can't see you, but yeah. Any, does anyone remember that? Oh, a few. Well done, some of the younger ones. You've got your finger on the old pulse. Well, it's a fantastic presentation of Jesus, of its sort. But there's a classic song in there by Mary Magdalene. Wonderful song, bit cheesy, but I love it. And it's called, I Don't Know How to Love Him. You know that song? Anyone there know it? I know it's in Really Vineyard. And there's a line in it, and it says... Yet, if he said he loved me, I'd be lost. I'd be frightened. Amazing, amazing insight. She's so, in the play, presented so loving and overflowing in her affection for him. And that's all confused with her sexuality and desire. She just knows, here's a man who never treat her wrong who loved her and cared for her and healed her and delivered her and restored her and gave dignity to her and she's just fallen for him. And it's it's all kind of confused, but she's just in love with him. And she says, if he says he loved me, I'd be lost. I'd just drown in it and I'd be frightened. I believe that the fear of the Lord goes with the love of God. We hold the two together I've been married 30 years. I love my wife more each day. I cannot believe she stayed with me. You know what I mean? I can hardly stay with myself sometimes. And (laughs) I just think she's... And I have a kind of holy fear that I would do something to offend her, that I would do something to dishonor her. 
Many of my friends have left the ministry. They've been unfaithful to their wives. They've been unfaithful to the Lord, and they're out of the game. May God have mercy. What holds one is it's so loving your beloved that you'd be afraid to hurt her or him. That's the fear of the Lord. I love him so much that I'm afraid to do anything that would offend him or to dishonor him. I just want to promote him and bless him. Tim Keller defines the fear of the Lord in a, it, with a, this illustration that he got from Christopher Lee. You know, Christopher Lee played Sauron in Lord of the Rings. And Christopher Lee was obsessed with Tolkien. And uh, on one occasion, he met Tolkien. And uh, Christopher Lee, in his autobiography, says that when he met him, uh, and he was just so taken up by Lord of the Rings, um, he says, when he met him, he said, I just felt like kneeling. I just wanted to kneel. He was just in awe. There was just adoration and honor for this man, this living legend who'd written a book that so inspired Christopher Lee. I think that's what it is, that it's a, it's a wanting to kneel. It's a wanting to honor. It's being just overwhelmed. And there may be a giddiness to that or there may be a kind of reverence to that. But either way, it's predicated upon this, wow, as well as a woe, W-O-E, although you could put a W-O-H. Yeah, you could. <laughs> I was just thinking for a minute. Yeah, no, you can't. Christian songwriter Tom Reed says that when he hears, he's a member of our church worship leader, he says when he thinks about the fear of the Lord, he and I were talking about this, he says he remembers as a young boy going to a racehorse track. And he says he, with his dad, they went down right near the bend where the horses came round. And they were stood right there by the fence. And he said, as the horses came round, thundering around, he said, he's just a kid, the whole ground kind of shook. And he said, as they came by, it sucked the breath out of him. That's what I mean by the fear of the Lord. It just sucks the breath out of us with wonder and majesty and power that divinity has come near us. What a thing. Not this sort of, oh, is, is it God or isn't it God? Is he coming? Let's see, what do we think? No, this awe. Marilyn Adams was a professor of philosophy at Oxford and they went to Yale and she said this, that she says her prayer, she says, God, you are really, 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 really big. And we are really, 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 really small. And when you see that and when you recognize that God in his greatness condescends, to kiss humanity, there is awe. It is the fear of the Lord. C.S. Lewis said, the fear of God leads to a, a certain kind of shrinking. I like that. You know, when the Spirit of God fell in the Azusa Street revival, William Seymour led the revival. Just a young man, he was, well, 35, and um, son of 
uh, African-American slaves, blind in one eye, pretty uh, uneducated, semi-illiterate. God used him to birth the Pentecostal movement. That's now 500 million people. What a thing. But he said when the Spirit of God would come down in the meetings, his pulpit was made out of packing crates. This church was an old um, barn or warehouse. And he had these packing crates that he'd just preached from that would be stood up on end. And when the glory of God came down, he would hide in the packing case. Can you imagine that? Hide. There's a video doing the rounds where God is supposed to have come at a worship meeting in a very powerful, tangible, manifest manner on the stage, of course. And uh, they're on the stage. And what do people do, do you know? They all took out their phones and started filming. Wow, that's God on the stage. Let me just, let me get a selfie with God on the stage. Uploaded it. Everyone's in awe. Wow. It's pathetic. Sinful. Really. When you get to be 53, you can say things like that. Really pathetic. Listen, if God were to come in such awe and majesty and might and glory and just bear his holy arm upon a stage at a worship gathering, you're not taking out your phone and taking pictures as selfies. You're on your face. Listen, you're on your face when God comes, when the glory comes. You know where you should be at his feet, not getting your phone out. Saints, really. I became a Christian in 1985. In 1986, I went to a conference called Acts 86. It was the first vineyard um, first major vineyard conference in, in Britain um, that was national. And there'd been a few regional church ones, about three before that. And I went there and there were about 5,000 people gathered. I'd never, you know, been in a context with, with so many Christians, a new Christian. And Michael Green talked in the morning. Was anyone here there? No. Anyway, it was a great event. <laughs> it was a great event. I sat, I was just a young Christian. I'm sat with the husband and the wife who'd driven me there up from Bristol. It was held in NEC Birmingham. And John Wimber got on the stage. I freaked out. I thought, what? I just felt like anointing. I'd modeled myself on him. He was a big fat man with a white beard. I thought, yes. <laughs> and um, I, there he was. And he just ministered. But when he, he, he began ministry, he just said, come Holy Spirit. And the Spirit fell. The Spirit came on this gathering. People were falling down like nine pins. I'd never seen anything like it. I had no frame of reference for it. They're falling down. They're freaking out. The woman who I came up in the car with, I spent an hour and a half with her in the car, begins screaming. She's next to me screaming like a demon or something coming out. I thought, what is going on? And the impulse that I felt was, I'm going to run away. I can't handle this. I am so small and so scared and so sinful. I shouldn't be in this place. I'm going to be exposed. I'm going to whatever. I cannot. And I was freaking out. And I thought, I'm going to run away. But at the same time, I had the kind of inexorable pressure and longing to run to the front. 
and get closer to the thing. That was my first sense of the fear of God, where he is revealed in such power and such immediacy and such tangible presence that there's a, a, a pulling away. That was the flesh. That was fear. That was the sin nature. And that was the creature in me. And also, I just want more of this. It's a frequent phenomenon when the Spirit of God really falls in power. People run to the front and others run out the back door. And often they run out the back door and then run back in. It's a kind of crazy thing. I've actually been at meetings when people just start running. When the glory has come down, they're just running. They're freaking out. They're like, what is this? It's not bedlam, but it is the running, you know? I'm not encouraging that. We're not looking for that. There's no kind of auto-suggestion there. The fear of the Lord is the normal Christian life. The normal Christian life. You know, there are over 300 verses in Scripture that address the fear of the Lord. Over 300. This is, this is found all over the place. You know, this is Brighton Rock. Wherever you break, it says Brighton. Wherever you break Scripture, it says the fear of the Lord. Kierkegaard, the Danish philosopher, said that it was the essence of the Christian life is fear and trembling. Orthodox rabbis pray, Orthodox Jewish, Orthodox Jews pray every day that God would give them the fear of the Lord. They pray for it because it's evidence that they are aligned rightly to God and filled with the Spirit. And the fear of God should frame our life. Major theme with entering into the land. God says it through Moses to them, when you enter the land, fear God. And it was because they didn't fear God that they mess up, they get into sin, they start having it away with their neighbors, they start dishonoring and treating poorly the poor, they don't worship God and they find themselves exiled. The most repeated proverb in the Bible is the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It says in Ecclesiastes that the end of all things is the fear of God. It's the beginning and the end of all things. It is the right response to God. I was in a coffee shop when I was typing this up, and I just wrote the heading, The Fear of the Lord. The the owner of the uh, bike shop attached to the coffee shop comes in. He's not a Christian. He looks over my shoulder. He went, Fear of the Lord. He had a bit of religion in him, but he's not at all Christian. He said, Isn't that like an Old Testament thing? I said, Yeah, it's an Old Testament, but it's New Testament too. Wherever Jesus went, awe came down. The fear of God. St. Paul says, That the fundamental sin in Romans 1, he says, the fundamental sin is not fearing God. Not Romans 1, it's Romans 3. St. Peter says that you're to honor the emperor and you're to fear God. Leviticus says that if you dishonor the elderly or you dishonor the poor, you're in real trouble. And then it says, fear God. Paul says that it's his motive for evangelism. Fear God. The fear of God brings blessing. One of the major themes in the book of Psalms. Those who fear God. How about this for a list of blessings? He stores up greatness for those who fear him. Anyone want to be great? I mean, we all want to be humble, so we're not going to say we want to be great. But um, it would be nice for God to bless us with a bit of greatness, you know, just a little bit on Friday. Greatness. If you make him great, he'll make you great. He unfurls his banner against the enemies of those who fear him. God steps in and steps up for those who fear him. 
He loves those who fear him. His eyes are upon those who fear him. He provides for those who fear him. He encamps around those who fear him. He fulfills the desire of those who fear him. He delights in those who fear him. Aren't these wonderful things? You want to be blessed? You want a blessing? Fear God. And there is great blessings poured out there. What happens when we don't fear God? Well, let me just throw out a couple of things. First, we trivialize evangelism. St. Paul in 2 Corinthians says, knowing the fear of God, we persuade men. The fact is, God is holy and righteous and Lord and God and sovereign. And people are sinful and self-willing and independent and their own little gods. And many have turned their back upon God and come judgment day when they meet him if they meet him in their own, in their own nature, then there, there is a great gulf between them and God. God is so pure, says Habakkuk, he cannot even look upon sin. And he must turn away, and he must send them away. When you fear God, when you understand the nature of his holiness and his righteousness and his justice and eternity that is predicated upon those things, then that will be a motivation for our evangelism. We don't just want people to have a good time. We want them to be saved. Paul says, through this gospel, you are saved. Saved from what? From wrath and judgment and eternal separation from God. It is a motivating factor for evangelism. Here's the thing. When you don't have the fear of God, when you misconstrue your understanding of God, you no longer engage in evangelism. And the whole weight of your mission may, will be involved in other things, most of which will be good, but they're not the main and the plain. You're no longer saving people. You're no longer rescuing them. You're no longer bringing them into reconciliation with God and redemption from sin, death, and hell. You're simply blessing their life and their surrounds and, and so on. Evangelism falters when we lose the fear of God. We stop sharing our faith. It's a major motivation. Paul says, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. He also says in the same letter, 2 Corinthians 5, the love of Christ compels me. So it's both. I love people and I'm, go and I'm concerned for their eternal destiny. I want to humbly say most Christians don't care about most where most people are going to spend forever. Because if they did, they'd engage in evangelism. And many of us are happy to spend most time doing just about anything else than telling people of the eternal consequence of their life without God. Secondly, when we lose the fear of the Lord, we live to please other people. Jesus said, don't be afraid of those who kill the body, but fear the one who can destroy your soul. But so often, if we're not afraid of God, we're afraid of people. The flip side is that if we fear God, we don't fear anyone. We're secure in him. And I wonder how much of what we do, certainly as church leaders, comes about as a result of the fearing what people might think and pandering to them rather than honoring God. There was a very famous preacher called Campbell McAlpine, beautiful man. I met him 
he didn't have time of day for me. But anyway, I just remember being in awe of the man. Amazing preacher. And on one occasion, he was speaking, and there were all these like, excuse me, there were all these apostles sat here. No, let's go this way. There were all these apostles sat here, right? So he began his preaching, he, stu- he looked at him and he said, well, it's so wonderful to be here with apostle this and apostle that. And he began stroking them, oh, you know, and just by honoring them, kind of getting some honor back and just borrowing their or honor, really. And then he stopped himself and he said, and he sort of half prayed it, I fear God too much to flatter men. I thought, ooh. And when I heard that, I was really struck. About a week later, I'm invited to a conference. And I'm speaking at this big charismatic conference. And I can see people who are doing an afternoon session. And they've got their arms crossed like that. And they're thinking, shut up, fatso. This is boring. You know, something like that. And I'm speaking. And I, I can just see them. And I'm intimidated by them. I just feel, ooh, ooh. So do you know what I did? Instead of saying, oi, sit up and listen, which is probably I should have said, no, I instead of doing that, I said, I'm so pleased, this is what I did, I can't believe I did it. It's the flesh, it's just prophetic. I said, I see at the back, we've got the visiting prophetic team from wherever. I said, I'm so excited that you're here because I was ministering at a conference last year and you were there and you really spoke into my life and you really blessed me. And so I do encourage everyone to attend that seminar. And I just stroked them. I just stroked them. And at that point, the sermon died. It was like God said, that is boring, fatso. And God left, you know. <laughs> it was awful. And I just like stumbled through the rest of my time. And I realized immediately what I'd done. I just in my insecurity and sense of inferiority before these prophets, I just stroked them so that they would be nice. And in fact, they were, you know, having sat there being bored, I stroked them, they all went, oh yes, great sermon, Vicar. And um, I mean, it's pathetic, really, a pathetic illustration from a pathetic man. So often we fear people rather than fear God. But when we fear God, we put everything in the right perspective, we, we don't fear others. And then thirdly, the other consequence when we lose the fear of the Lord is that we relativize sin. The first time the fear of the Lord is mentioned in Scripture, and there's a principle of theological kind of uh, uh, understanding of themes that you look at, it's called the law of first reference. You look when something first appears. When does a word first appear? When does the concept first appear? That's specially foundational. It's an interesting approach. But the first reference to the fear of the Lord is when Abraham's wife is being seduced by a local king. And then the king finds out that she's married. And and Abraham says, there is no fear of the Lord in this place. There is no fear of the Lord. In other words, the first time the word fear of the Lord is mentioned is in the context of sexual immorality. And I want to say that gently that the the evidence of the lack of the fear of the Lord 
invariably, one of the first indicatives is sexual immorality. You don't fear the Lord if you're sleeping with the person you're not married to. You don't fear the Lord if you're sleeping with someone you're not married to in your mind. You don't fear the Lord if you're addicted to the porn. Turn the thing off. The fear of the Lord will keep you from sin or sin will keep you from the fear of the Lord. And saints, if God is to bring revival, which I believe is always his desire, he doesn't just want to renew the church, he wants to use the church to bring the nation to him. And that is revival, that's the difference. We need to move from renewal to revival and we do it by putting the cross at the center, having our lives founded and grounded on God's truth in his word and by living in the fear of the Lord. And that means living an upright and righteous life. Listen, you cannot com commit adultery if you fear the Lord. You can't fiddle, those of you who are old enough, your tax returns if you fear the Lord. You can't mistreat or dishonor someone if you fear the Lord. You can't speak ill of them if you fear the Lord. You cannot harbor resentments and bitterness against someone if you fear the Lord. And we must fear the Lord. So we mustn't give room to these things. And then lastly, I'm sorry I've gone on a bit. The fear of the Lord brings the nearness of the Lord. The fear of the Lord brings the Lord near. Somehow as we fear him and are, honor, and, and are rightly aligned to him in honor and respect and reverence and wonder and love, he's wooed by that. He's, he's drawn, he's drawn near to us by fear of him. Not being afraid, that means we run away. Fear, we run to him but we recognize who he is. And when we fear him, he blesses us. And that's what we see in the early church. If you read the book of Acts, we see miracles happening and fear of the Lord. Nearly every reference to miracles in, in the early chapters of the book of Acts also mentions the fear of the Lord. You want to see a proliferation of miracles? You need the fear of the Lord. When you have the fear of the Lord, you see a proliferation of miracles because the fear of the Lord woos him and causes him to roll up his sleeves and get stuck in and pour out his spirit in power. Acts 2, 43, everyone was filled with fear and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. I long to be in a church where many miraculous signs and wonders were done by the apostles. We're only scratching the surface. We're grateful for it. But I long for the day when remarkable things are seen regularly, where the remarkable is regular in church. But for that, there will be fear of the Lord. In Acts 5, following the death of Ananias and Sapphira for lying to God, it says, great fear seized the whole church and the apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders. You want to see more? I have been to dozens and dozens of seminars on healing. I've given them. I've never mentioned the fear of the Lord in that context. I think it's a missing key. That's all I'm saying. I need to finish. The last 
revival that took place in the British Isles, revival, where the community is saturated with God and people are sovereignly brought to him and the church is open the whole time and can't contain all the people who come. Happened in the Hebrides in 1949. And it was led by a minister called Duncan Campbell, amazing Scottish minister. I've just read his biography. Wow. And uh, just God did amazing things. He had been preaching in Northern Ireland. What a wonderful thing it is to preach in Northern Ireland. He was preaching there at a conference. He's about to get up and preach, and God, God says to him, I don't want you here. I want you in the Hebrides. So he turns to someone, he says, I'm really sorry, I know I'm about to go and preach. Um, God wants me in the Hebrides. Okay, that, now that is charismatic. And, um, and not very helpful if you're running the conference. You'd have thought they had the discernment not to have invited him. But, um, so he says, I gotta go. I just, I gotta go. God's telling me I gotta go. And they went, oh, right, okay. And uh, anyway, up he went. And he, he, he booked a boat and off he went. Crossed over into Scotland and got another boat to the Hebrides and sent a, a message in advance saying, I'm on my way. Uh, a, 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 a telegram. Anyway, he was met by, uh, he arrived on the 7th of December and he was met at the pier by a couple of ministers who kind of invited him but didn't think he was going to come. They just asked him, would he be willing at some point to come? And as he got off the boat, they met him and one of the elders says to him, Mr. Campbell, can I ask you a question? Are you walking with God? I mean, what a question. They asked me that when I arrived yesterday. Uh, they didn't, but it's a good question. <laughs> Are you walking with God? And Campbell, Duncan Campbell says this. Well, he says, I could see that here were men who meant business. We need a church with women and men who mean business. Real business with God. And he says to his reply was this, all I can say is this, that I fear God. And the elder on the pier, as the wind and rain lashed against him, said, well, if you fear God, that'll do. If you fear God, that'll do. That first night he preached, the glory of God came down. And all the islands were swept with a mighty revival. And all those who had nothing to do with church came to faith. They were converted plowing the fields. They were converted walking the roads. They went and, and knocked on the door of the pastor and said, open up the church. We need to pray. People who never went to church. And a revival came. And it came because people on the island prayed with the fear of God and prayed for a man to come with the fear of God. Your generation are positioned to bring a remarkable move of God. No generation before you has had what you have. And just in terms of influence and connectivity, passion, 
and the church is ready to host it. But what we need is to be rightly orientated to the Lord. And that means recovering the fear of the Lord. Recovering the fear of the Lord. So that we commit to evangelism. That we don't flatter and please people. That we don't hide sin. And that our lives live to give him glory. Amen?